You're listening to Wide Margins, episode 64, The Church Splits. I'm not even going to make excuses to you now. I I can't, because the last few episodes, I think I've started out saying, hey, it's been a long time since we've been together. Um, I'm getting back on track. I'm not going to put any more long lapses between episodes, and then two months will go by and I'll say it again. So, If I continue to make promises I can't keep, you're going to quit listening, or you're going to quit listening to this as something to be taken seriously, and it's just going to be like a comedy podcast, a really bad joke. So I'm not going to make any promises. I will tell you it's my intention to get back on track. It's my intention to record episodes and post them more frequently. We'll see what happens. We do need to continue our series on church history. I hope that you're learning something. This is a part of church history we often skip. We'll talk about the early church. Uh, We may even talk about the church fathers in the second, third centuries. And then we skip about a thousand years or more to the Reformation. Talk about the Reformation and then maybe even restoration, the restoration movement. But uh, we... Talk about the Middle Age, <clears throat> the Middle Ages very rarely, very infrequently, and we miss a lot of explanations for why the world is the way that it is today, particularly the Christian world. And this episode is one example of that. Today, the Christian world is divided into three main branches: Roman Catholicism, Protestantism, where most of your denominations fall. And then orthodoxy. Why are there three main branches of Christianity? It's not because Christ wanted it that way. Most of us know that. We know Jesus' prayer in John 17, where he said in verse 21 that he prayed that all the disciples would be one. We know Paul's letter to the Corinthians, where he said that there should be no divisions among Christians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. And some people will defend denominationalism by saying when Paul wrote those words, he didn't mean there should be no differences from church to church. Just within congregations, there should be no divisions. But what's the difference if the two Christians are worshiping at the same church or in, on two sides of the world on fundamental things? on fundamentals, we should be united together. That's the ideal. That was Christ's plan. It was never his plan to have different kinds of Christians. But throughout these episodes on church history, we've been noticing a rift forming between the Roman Catholic Church in the West, centered upon the city of Rome, and the Orthodox Church in the East centered on the city of Constantinople. It's not just the churches that are forming this rift. There are really two empires that are forming. Some of the emperors of Rome lean to the West, most of them really. Some of them lean to the East, and this has been a tenuous empire for emperors to try to hold together. It's splintering and the church is at the heart of that division. In 1054, we have an official split between Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. The Protestant denominations we know today, they come much later 
in the 1500s, so another 500 years. But we're going to talk about the division that happened first in 1054. And you may know a little bit about Roman Catholicism. If you're a Roman Catholic, you know a great deal about it. But most of us in the part of the world that I live in know very little about Eastern Orthodoxy. And hopefully by the end of this episode, you'll know a little more, but you'll still know very little about Eastern Orthodoxy because I have to confess, I don't know a whole lot about it myself. But what I know, I'm going to share with you and I think that's going to help us understand what happened. And uh, so I'm going to start with just a, a very general introduction to Eastern Orthodoxy. What is it? Where is it located? Today, Eastern Orthodox churches are located mostly in Greece, on the island of Cyprus, and in Russia. And there are probably 15 distinct churches, or I guess we'd call them denominations, within the umbrella of Eastern Orthodoxy. Uh, this vast empire ruled by Constantine, with Constantinople as its capital, was once the home of the Orthodox churches. Now, only of that empire, only Greece and half of Cyprus are Greek Orthodox. Uh, con the conversion of Vladimir in 988 in Russia to Eastern Orthodoxy brought it to Ukraine and Russia, and that's where it is strongest today. So it is not as widespread as it once was, which is why we know very little about it. Probably the best starting point for understanding Orthodoxy is its holy images, which are called icons. Uh, that may be what you know about Eastern Orthodoxy. When an Orthodox believer enters a church to attend services, the first thing that he will do is go to this wall of paintings that stands in the eastern entrance of the church between the nave and the, the sanctuary. Uh, it's called the, iconostasis, the iconos, iconostasis. Uh, it's a wall of, of paintings, icons, and the worshiper will go in and he'll kiss the icons before taking his place in the congregation. Now, Orthodox homes have something similar on the eastern walls of their houses, and I saw this when I traveled in Russia a lot. Some, Many of the homes where the people were still Orthodox, which is most of the homes there, uh, you you would see this these icons you'd see a little shrine on the wall and um, if you were orthodox and you visited the home of someone who was orthodox the first thing that you would do is you'd walk in the house and you'd you'd go to the wall and you might kiss the icons and bow and cross yourself and only after you do that would you greet your host now, what's the big deal about these paintings? Orthodox believers see the icons as manifestations of the heavenly ideal, kind of like a window between heaven and earth. To the Orthodox Christian, being created in the image of God has something to do with this, and it means you carry the icon of God, which icon and image mean essentially the same thing. You carry the image of God, the icon of God within yourself. The technical term for that is theosis. Uh, 
That's what salvation is all about, renewing the image of God. Sin is not defined in Western terms as a violation of divine law. That's how we look at it. Sin is a transgression of the law. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Uh, we, we say when you sin, you, you break God's law, you fall short of the glory of God. Uh, in Eastern Orthodoxy, they view sin differently. I'm not saying they would disagree with that definition of sin, but they would say it, their perspective on it is that you're inflicting a wound on the original image of God or the reduction of the divine likeness. And so they don't believe in original sin. They believe that uh, everyone is born innocent and free, born in the image of God, but Ever since Adam, everyone's been open to sin and has allowed sin into their lives, which harms or inflicts a wound on the image of God that we were born with. So salvation is a repair of the divine image in each and every one of us, making us like we were meant to be from our birth. And that's impossible without Christ, the incarnate God, who came to earth to restore the image of God or the icon of God in man. Through Christ, God's image is reborn in human beings so that they're made ready to join the pre-existing fellowship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in heaven. The church is also viewed from this perspective. It's not just an institution, but it's the mystical body of Christ, constantly renewed by the life of the Holy Spirit that's flowing through it. We talk about the body of Christ a lot, and I even hear people say, uh, we are the hands and feet of Jesus on earth. And that's true, and um, the Orthodox Church would say that as well. But when they say it, they think, could I say more literally, about the church as the body of Christ than we do over in the West. Uh, they actually believe we are a part of a, a mystical body. They, they just believe it more personally, more strongly, whereas we, we kind of think of it in terms of an illustration or representation. That's uh, a brief overview of icons, and I'll talk more about them and their meaning in a moment. But the icon, uh, there are basically two, two points about that. It's the, the painting on the wall of the home or on the wall separating the nave from the sanctuary and the church. Uh, much reverence would be paid to it. I'll say more about that in a moment. But, but also, every human carries the image or the icon of God in himself by virtue of being created that way. Sin destroys it, contaminates it. Christ heals it and brings that image back, reignites it in our lives. So you have to understand that. It's a whole different way of looking at Christianity and faith. Another thing that was different between the church in the West and the church in the East is the way they viewed church and state. Orthodox believers thought of Constantine as the initiator of a Christian world, and his reign as emperor, which you'll remember is 4th century, was viewed as the climax of the evolution of the Roman Empire. They considered that Christ-sanctioned Constantine's power and made him the divine representative and that through Constantine, God bound the empire to himself by special ties. 
that's a very different view of government than what we're accustomed to. We talk about the separation of church and state, and uh, we look at the church as having kind of a, a check on government power, and the church preaches to the government, and the government is separate from the church, and we have the right to to rebuke it when it's wrong. And if the government sets up laws in conflict with the laws of God, we must obey God rather than man, Acts chapter 5, verse 29. But in orthodoxy, the government is a direct reflection, an expression of the divine will for the world and for human society. So Constantinople, like the New Rome, was regarded as a holy city at the center of a Christian society ruled by a Christian emperor, not just an emperor who happened to be a Christian, but a Christian emperor, an emperor who ruled Christian society. Constantine, I don't know if he ever bought into that himself. He saw these differences between Western Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy, and he and emperors after him worried how that might affect unity. And so, they set up this process to settle the differences, and we've talked about this already. It's the Ecumenical Council, the first one being held in Nicaea in 325, many to follow. These councils, ecumenical councils, were very important to Eastern Orthodox churches. Uh, They only count the first seven as legitimate authoritative councils. In fact, they put so much emphasis on the decisions made in those seven councils that they're sometimes called the Church of the Seven Councils. And so that's very important to keep in mind as well. Roman Catholics have a tradition that goes far beyond that. Um, Members of Protestant denominations don't even regard, well, I, I can't say they don't regard the seven councils, but They don't regard them as authoritative as Scripture. Uh, And and there are all kinds of different ways to look at authority, but Eastern Orthodox Christians put a, a, a huge amount of authority in the seven councils. So how did the official split come about? Well, it was a long time coming. The first sign that East and West were headed for a split came in 395, it's very early, when the Emperor Theodosius the Great, on his deathbed, divided the empire between his two sons. He didn't know which one to give the inheritance of the whole empire. He thought that was a bad idea. We, we have seen that before Constantine, uh, other, other emperors would, would try to, to split the empire up knowing that power corrupts and it's a bad idea to have everything riding on one man. Well, Theodosius did this between his two sons. Honorius received the west. Arcadius received the east. Another powerful emperor would come along later, 527 to 566. His name was Justinian. And under him, Byzantine culture, that's the culture of the east, Constantinople, that culture flourished. He rebuilt Constantine's Church of Holy Wisdom. It's still standing today, the Hagia Sophia, and consecrated it in 538. And, and when he did this, it was this huge undertaking. He proclaimed that he had outdone Solomon, that this was bigger than the temple in Jerusalem. 
and in finishing it, he had brought the plans of Constantine to completion. Uh, Justinian was very important to orthodoxy, and uh, he never distinguished the Roman state from Christianity. He regarded himself in the in the uh, tradition of Const- Constantine as a Christian emperor, and one of the things that he said is he defined his role as, quote, the maintenance of the Christian faith in its purity and the protection of the holy Catholic and apostolic church from any disturbance. One of the things that brought about the split was the conflict over icons, and the name for that conflict is iconoclasm. People who led the march against icons were called iconoclasts. And today we'll talk we talk about iconoclasts as people who break tradition or pioneer new ground culturally speaking. That comes out of this background. The iconoclasts opposed icons. And uh, the question was, is the worship of icons wrong? And Christians in the East said no. And the iconoclasts in the West said, yes, icons are not sufficiently sacred to worship. Worshiping them is idolatry. One of the iconoclasts was the 8th century emperor Leo III, 717 to 741. Uh, He attacked the use of icons, and uh, he led some crusades, which we'll talk about in later episodes And after successfully defeating Muslim armies in their second major attack on Constantinople, he he found a position of strength there in the east and openly declared his opposition for the first time. And an angry mob murdered the official sent to replace the icon of Christ with the cross over the Bronze Gate in Constantinople. Entire areas of the empire rebelled. Mosaics were torn from the walls. Icons were whitewashed over. Uh, Leo forced the retirement of the Patriarch of Constantinople who supported icons and consecrated a new one who favored his views. What the iconoclasts wanted was to replace religious icons with tradition Christian symbols of the cross, the Bible, with uh, elements of the Lord's Supper. So they were okay with symbols. They just didn't like paintings depicting um, saints and Christ and God and the Holy Spirit, uh, they believed that was idolatry. Idolatry. Now, there were, of course, strong supporters of icons, one being a man named John of Damascus, uh, 7th century, 675 to 749. He was an 8th, 8th century monk, really. That's when he was mostly active, was in the 700s. Orthodox Christians regard him as the last of the church fathers because the ones that came after him did not support orthodoxy. Borrowing philosophy from Plato, John, also called John the Faster, explained that an image was never the same substance as its original, but merely imitated it. So he tried to walk back from this charge of idolatry, saying, we don't regard the icons as God himself, but they're imitating life. They're, they're imitating the reality. They're not the reality itself. Much as Plato said that the objects that we can see and sense with our senses 
they're not the reality. They're not the ideal. They're, they, they reflect it. They imitate it. They're a copy of it. So that was the significance of the icon. It was a copy and a reminder of the original. And if you denied that any true icon could depict Christ, you're denying the possibility of the incarnation, the way that John argued. Uh, you wouldn't say that Jesus didn't reflect the true reality of God. Well, why would you say that an icon can reflect the true re reality of God? Maybe to a lesser extent, but to some extent. And uh, he believed that icons of Christ and others could instruct and assist the believer in the worship of the true, uh, the true Christ. And he said there's no difference between honoring an icon and honoring the Bible or honoring a symbol of the cross. His arguments were rational, they were hard to argue against, and he was a very devoted follower, and so he was a very powerful supporter of the icons. Not long after John, the Seventh General Council, Seventh Ecumenical Council, assembled in Nicaea, where the first one was, 787, and it condemned the iconoclastic movement, in other words, the movement against the icons, and backed the position presented by John of Damascus. That's why Orthodox Christians support the first seven ecumenical councils and stop there, because that's where their positions were strong, that reflected their views, and the councils that followed were more Western in their outlook. Through the years after that council, the rift widened between the Orthodox Church in the East and the Catholic Church in the West. Finally, in 1054, Pope Leo IX sent Cardinal Humbert to Constantinople with a bull of excommunication. A bull is, is just basically an official papal document. And he delivered this to the altar of the Church of Holy Wisdom, the Hagia Sophia, during worship. Many people believed that in doing it that way, he was doing something that was sacrilegious. And as the cardinal who delivered this papal bull passed through the door on his way out. He shook the dust from his feet, and he said these famous words, Let God look and judge. And that marked the official split between the East and the West. Of course, you know, splits like this don't happen overnight. And all of the things that we've talked about really led to this. It was merely an official recognition of a split that had already occurred. In time, Military losses, heresies, chipped away at the great empire of Constantine and Justinian. And in the Middle Ages, the original territories of Greek Orthodoxy were reduced by the spread of Islam to western Turkey, the Balkans, and Cyprus. In 1453, Constantinople fell to the Islamic Turks. And so Orthodoxy has shrunk down and is in great decline in those original territories, like I said at the beginning of the podcast, only Greece and half of Cyprus has Orthodox churches. They're, you know, in the United States and other places as well, but they're not strong and not as connected as they are in Greece. But in, in Russia, it's very strong. Orthodoxy found a new home 
in Russia, where the ideas of the union of church and state mixed well with the culture. As I said, uh, near the year 1000, before the split, Vladimir was converted. He was a very powerful advocate for orthodoxy. A theory developed that there had been one Rome, and that had fallen to the barbarians, and then there was a second Rome in the east, and that fell to the Turks, and that Moscow was a third Rome, whose emperor took his title from the first Rome. The Russian word Tsar is the same word as Caesar, just as he had taken his religion from the second. And so, Russian Orthodoxy is alive and well today, having survived communism, it's still the official state religion, and very strong in those days. So there you have it, the church split in the Middle Ages for the first time. Many more splits would follow. In my weak and feeble way, I tried to introduce you to Eastern Orthodoxy. I hope you know a little bit more about it than you knew when you first started listening. And there's more to learn. Just stay tuned to Wide Margins.